I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. To explore strange new worlds. To seek out new life and new civilizations. To boldly go where no man has gone before. Others lock up your sons. The fangirls are busting out all over. It's Fangirl Radio. Fangirl Radio. Here's the fangirls on Jackalope Radio. Hi, Kenny. It's Jessica. <laughs> Hi, Jessica. It's nice to hear your voice. Well, we actually met not too long. Um, well, it was probably I'm going to say I was going to say not too long ago, but it was like probably five years ago at Comic Con. Well, that's uh, not too long ago. But uh, you made me cry when you were talking about Bill Bixby on stage, and I got <laughs> to. Know, you know. Well, you know it's. Uh, it's um, it still hurts, you know. He was. Uh, oh. it's, it's hard for me to imagine the world without him. And uh, uh, the only the only really good thing is uh, is the reason I got into this business to begin with, which is because once you capture a, a performance on film, it doesn't go away. So at least <clears throat> you know I have that to look back on and see him and remember him. But I sure miss picking up the phone and not hearing him say hi, Kenny. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, let me introduce you to the, the gang here, and, and you've already, I think you've just made Rachel tear up, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, is it Rachel you said? Yes, Rachel yes. And, and, and Amanda, and um, Rachel and Amanda, this is Kenneth Johnson. He is one of Hi, the... Hi, Rachel uh, and Amanda. He's nice one of the building you. blocks of my, um, my youth here. Oh, well, you're so kind. I appreciate that very much. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate it, although I didn't mean to bring a tear to your eye. <laughs> but um, I, I'm very excited to talk to you tonight, and Rachel is also a, ma- a major fan of yours as well. And um, we're going to give you the full hour because we've got you've got such a, a background of work, and we got a lot to talk about. So beware what you wish for. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I'm going to I'm going to get into this here with something that I don't think a lot of people I don't know if Rachel even remembers this one but I, I had to ask with um, the resurgence of, of Sherlock Holmes in today's uh, markets and on TV on in film in mm-hmm. books are we going to get a DVD release of your return of Sherlock Holmes because that was one of oh my God, f- I, favorite things yeah I, I would yes. I would love that it was it was it was uh, I, I think it's doubtful it was the company that 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 produced it when I did it for CBS uh, was went into bankruptcy and they ended up selling off the assets to this other Canadian company. Um, and I have never even seen a residual from that, although they have been apparently running it like crazy all over the world. Uh, but because it was sold in bankruptcy and out of the country from one Canadian co- company to another, even the Directors Guild and the Writers Guild has have proven in, uh, 
totally unhelpful in trying to track it down. Uh. So I think that I think it's, the chances are slim, but it's too bad because uh, several times I have felt uh, the the urge to try to go back and resurrect it. It was the the most difficult script that I ever wrote because what happens is you think, oh, that's a great idea, a great character. Bring him; he'll be a fish out of water in the twentieth then the twentieth century, and a uh, hundred years uh, out of his time, and uh, and so everything will be funny, and yet he'll still be brilliant. Oh, yada yada yada, all that stuff. Right, it's given, right. Um, and the problem is, then I sat down to write the script, and I went, wait a minute, the guy's a genius. How do you write for a genius when you're not a genius? <laughs> <laughs> you know? and, and I mean, I really did. I went, holy shit, how do I get to, how do I do this? And the only consolation that I had was to, as I did my research, I discovered that uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, who of course created Sherlock, had exactly the same problem. And that's why he originally killed Sherlock off after only the first 13 stories. He didn't want to write him anymore because it was too hard. There would be days <laughs> when I would be walking around my office literally in physical pain trying to figure out how I was going to make this work. And <laughs> the only help that I got was that I discovered that Conan Doyle had gone through exactly the same stuff, you know. And then uh, the trick to it was to write backwards. You had to figure out where you wanted to end up and then write backwards so that you could lay down the clues that you needed Sherlock to find in order to get there. But, oh, my God, what a writing challenge it was. And yet, and yet when I'd figure something out, I felt like a magician who pulls those bouquets out of the air, you know? It was like, wow, and I get so excited. And, uh, and I had a, we had a lot of fun uh, doing that movie, and... Uh, um, and it, the plan was that it was going to go on and become a series of two-hour movies on CBS, but has happened to me innumerable times in my career. The management changed, and the new guy, of course, never wants to know what the old guy was planning to do or was interested in. He just says, no, 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 we're not going to do any of that stuff. We've got to do my stuff now. So, um, so it never went in, into series, and it's disappointing because I had four uh, one-hour scripts written and an additional two-hour movie as well, because they weren't sure whether they wanted it to be a two-hour or a one-hour or a combination of the both, and, uh, and they're still sitting in my office, and I've, uh, I've, I've, I took them out several times trying to do it, but because of the rights entanglement, um, uh, you know, I, I didn't, uh, I wasn't able to go forward, but bless your heart for remembering that because it's uh, it was a, one of the little gems in my uh, in my canon and I uh, certainly I certainly enjoyed doing it uh, much more after it was finished <laughs> than while I was trying to write it well I thought it was neat because the guy Anthony Higgins played Moriarty in young Sherlock Holmes and he played, played Holmes Mor in this oh did he and had he played Moriarty before in, in, well in the he one in played England? Well, no, he played in Young Sherlock Holmes the the um, the Steven Spielberg. Oh, movie. that's right, that's right, that's right. Yeah, and, he ended uh, up right. being Moriarty. <laughs> I know he, he ended up turning around full circle for this, and uh, <laughs> exactly. and Anthony was uh, was a, was a, was a wonderful actor who uh, who once we got into it, and you know, uh, it's the quick story because we don't need to spend a lot of time on this. But uh, during rehearsal, he and Deborah were reading the the scene together and uh, and sitting across the table from each other. And Anthony was leaning toward her, trying to get a point across. And, and I said, Anthony, do you think Sherlock leans? And he said, well, what, what do you mean? <laughs> and I said, well, isn't he the more of the regal broomstick up his butt kind of guy that is stiff and straight and lets people lean toward him? 
And he said, well, I don't, let me try it that way. And, he, and suddenly the whole character just crystallized right at that moment. He said, oh, my God, you're right. He said, the more I keep him straight and stiff and broomstick as ours, as he said, uh, the, the, you know, the better the, the better the character was. And, uh, um, and so once, once we had that moment in rehearsal, the whole thing just, just came together. And, uh, um, and it, was, it, was, it was a wonderful little directorial moment that I don't know where it came from. It was just instinct, I guess. But... Uh, but it was great, and we had we had a huge amount of fun doing it, and uh, uh, and Anthony really really nailed it, and Deborah was delightful, and uh, um, and we shot <laughs> we shot one we shot 23 days in Vancouver, 18 of them in the pouring rain, and uh, so many times when I'm filming in Vancouver and it's raining on me, I say, you know, guys, there's a reason the motion picture industry moved to Southern California. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> But uh, we shot 23 days in Vancouver and one nine-page day in San Francisco, and we were all over the city for for that nine pages of uh, and a couple of really really big long talk scenes that we shot there. But by the time we were finished, it looked like we really shot the whole thing in San Francisco. <laughs> nice. Well, and I, I was. Would you ever consider publishing just in regular like converting them to book format? Well, I can't again because because uh, the, because the rights are entangled, um, and uh, by this by this Canadian operation, that's what part of the reason I started investigating it because I uh, I felt that they would be really really cool books, and uh, and Sherlock just never goes away. I mean, they've done Sherlock in space, they've done Sherlock <laughs> spaced out <laughs> as they have with uh, Anthony with uh, Robert Downey Jr. lately, and uh, uh, and it's, it's just a, there's a reason the character is so great. I, I think the the new movies, well. You know they're fun and frolicsome and all of that. Uh, unfortunately, lose a great deal of the uh, the essential nature of, uh, of Holmes, which I was determined to uh, to continue in the uh, in the movie that the TV movie that we did. As a matter of fact, probably about a good 25 or 30 percent of the actual lines in my script are drawn right out of Conan Doyle's uh, writing because I really wanted to. Uh, you don't want to try to reinvent the wheel. <laughs> you know, when you've got a gem, mm-hmm. you just want to polish it. You don't want to try to cut it. And uh, and that's what I was endeavoring to do. But thanks well, for remembering I, I, it anyway. Oh, I, I absolutely loved it. My sister and I are huge Holmes fans, and Rachel's a Holmes fanatic. And mm. I I wanted to, to ask you about that, because no one ever mentions it. And so right, it was... Right. No, well, it, because it only aired once on, you know, on CBS. It was up against the premiere of uh, a, a, a new series by Steven Spielberg called Sequest, which actually they had invited me to be the, the producer, director, showrunner on. And I said, no, I don't think so. And... Um, uh, but they gave it a huge amount of promotion, so we were, you know, we 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 had a, I think we placed second in the time period, which was pretty good considering all the press that the, uh, that Sequest was getting. But uh, and as I said, Jeff Sigansky, who was running CBS, planned to go on further with it, but uh, but Jeff left, and oh gosh, I can't tell you how many times that's happened to me, where he's <laughs> just about to go. I've even had start dates on move on big movies where suddenly they call and say, listen, the guys who bought it are out, and there's new guys in, and they don't want to do it anymore. So, you know, <laughs> it's a terrible business, but what else would I do, you know? <laughs> well, and the other thing, um, uh, unless, Rachel, did you have a question? No, I, I'm lost in the story. I think it's little I'm a little gobsmacked just because, you know, I grew when I was growing up, Mm-hmm. I when I was a toddler, which probably makes is probably will make everybody hate me for being very young. But um, when I was a toddler, my my um, imaginary friend was the Hulk, and he was my okay. friend. 
And then the reason I got interested in sci-fi was because of Alien Nation. (laughs) In high school, I watched Vincent Price's Edgar Allan Poe evening. Oh, my gosh. Over it. And so I just... um, how that it, was, uh, I, I mean, that it's, was an it's amazing, amazing piece of work. He was an amazing guy. I had, uh, uh, I had back in the in the late '60s uh, been um, the executive producer of a, the biggest. Well, was and not only the biggest, it was the only and the first daytime talk show. It was called the Mike Douglas Show. It was hugely, hugely popular. We had a bigger audience than the Tonight Show and all the other shows put together. And uh, and that's where I met Vincent. And uh, uh-huh. uh, and one day when he was doing the show with us, I. Uh, I just sat him at a podium, stood him at a podium, and put the Telltale Heart in front of him and said, "Here, read this," <laughs> you know, and, uh, <laughs> uh, and and that was just standing in front of an audience doing a cold reading, and, and he was, you know, I mean, it took everybody's breath away. And when the, when I first came to California, I said, uh, I called him up and I said, "Hey, I got an idea. Let's let's do a uh, let's do a show where you enact four of Poe's stories." Uh, and of course, the actor said, "An hour of me all by myself, of course," <laughs> you know, <laughs> and. Uh, uh, and uh, but he could carry it off. I mean, he was he was brilliant, and uh, uh, and it was a, we just had the best time. He was a dear, dear, dear friend, and uh, and, and I miss him. But I'm, I'm I'm delighted that you caught up with the um, uh, the evening of Edgar Allan Poe early on, and uh, uh, and that you were a fan. And and um, Alien Nation. It's funny. People ask me, "What are you proudest of?" You know, which is a bit like saying, "Who's your favorite kid?" You know, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and 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 my 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 the, the work that I'm proudest of, I think, is probably V, because uh, so Yay. many of the other things that I did, <clears throat> so many of the other things that I did, like like the Hulk, like Alien Nation, uh, like even the Bionic Woman, in one way or another, were adaptations of something that pre-existed, one way or another. Um, and mm. but V came entirely out of my little pea brain, so that's the one that <laughs> I've always been, you know, probably the most the most proud of, and and perhaps was the most successful of all of them. But the one that I had the most fun doing was Alien Nation, um, and and I don't know if you've seen on the uh, on the Ultimate Movie Disc where they put our five movies out on DVD. There's a behind the scenes piece called A Family Gathering. Where I got the uh, the, the actors and, and I and, and had always stayed really close. Every year or two, we'd have a barbecue in somebody's backyard and just have a reunion. And uh, and I was listening to them talk one day, and I thought, you know, God, I'd really like to get this down. Uh, so I invited them back to my living room a few months later and had four cameras rolling, and uh, and, and I just talked to them for like an hour and. Uh, uh, and we put it together, and it became the special feature on the uh, on the movie DVD release. Um, and it's great. And if you look at that, that half hour with those actors and me talking, um, you see <laughs> why we, why we all love the show so much. Because first of all, there were no jerks. You know, um, all of the actors were great, and there was no "I'll be in my trailer" nonsense. Hollywood crap, and uh, <laughs> they all wanted to be there, and they all they all wanted to help each other all the way along, and uh, uh, particularly Gary and Eric. Uh, you know, one of the reasons I asked Eric to play the role of George in, um, in Alien Nation was because not only did I know that he was a really consummate actor and very well schooled and 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 very smart and very funny also. But, uh, but beyond that, I knew that Eric had the zen factor that I needed because he was going to have to sit in the makeup chair for almost two hours every morning and another hour every night 
for nine months every day. <laughs> you know. And you know, and and to his amazing credit, there were only a couple of times when he just lost it on the set and went, you know, spinning off, because it was it was a very freaky thing to have that thing on your head all the time. And as soon as it began to happen, Gary would put his arm around him and say, "Come on, buddy, let's take a walk." You know. And, uh, yeah, it's true. And and they talk about it in that uh, uh, in that special feature. Gary would walk him around outside and just, you know, just bring him back, and Eric would come in and apologize to everybody for being a jerk, and yada, 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 and, but he never really was. He was just, if you put your hands over your ears and talk, mm-hmm. that's how it was for Eric all the time, every day for nine months. And, uh, and <laughs> most other people would go bonkers long before he did. Sure. But, uh, but we had a great, great amount of fun, and, and not only did we have fun, but the important thing was for us what the show was about because when Fox first asked me to take a look at their movie uh, of Alien Nation I, you know I gotta say ladies I, I was not really very in, encouraged about it I thought oh sure it's got Alien in the title so call the Alien guy that's what he does you know? <laughs> and, well you know it's true I mean when I started out in New York I was a producer director and then very quickly they asked me to come to the Mike Douglas show uh, and I was there for almost two years, uh, and after a year they made me executive producer of the show. I was 24 years old, the youngest producer in the industry of a major show. And um, uh, and after working there and doing a lot of film work as, in connection with the show, I finally said, i gotta go to, I got to go to California and do what I want to do, which is to get into film. And I came to California and said, here I am, I'm ready to make movies. And they said, no, 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 you're a talk show producer. You know, and I was all of a sudden, oh my God, I see what happens out here. And, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, so I, I, I struggled uh, and I had to make a living. So I was even did some game shows when I first came out here. I got hooked up with Jack Barry of, uh, of the game show fame and helped him get the Jokers Wild and a few other shows on the air. And suddenly, guess what? I was a great game show producer, you know? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then when I got into, when I finally got my foot in the door, my pal Stephen Bochco, uh, who had been a classmate of mine in college, had come out a little bit ahead of me to California, and he introduced me around at Universal and uh, helped me to get my foot in the door. And, uh, uh, and very quickly, he introduced me to Harv Bennett, who was doing The Six Million Dollar Man and needed scripts in a hurry, and I suggested The Bride of Frankenstein. And uh, he said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, you've got this monster man. Let's turn him into a, you know, a, a, give him a mate uh, like Elsa Lanchester was for uh, Boris Karloff. Let's <laughs> see Bride of Frankenstein. And that's where the bionic woman came from. And so, But you do the bionic woman, and then you roll right into the Incredible Hulk, and then you do V, <laughs> and pretty soon you're the sci-fi guy, you know. <laughs> But you're so good I, at it. Well, you, you know, <laughs> and, and I, I, well, there's a, there's a quality of I've always had a quality of blooming where I was planted, you know. But uh, <laughs> I've been lucky enough. But but I think that, I think what it is is that I uh, when I was at Carnegie, it was Carnegie Tech then. It's not Carnegie Mellon. The drama department at Carnegie uh, was was steeped us in theater history and in the great plays from the time of the Greeks all the way up to the you know the, the 20th century. Uh, so I had a huge sort of classical training, and, and I think because I had that as my background, I was able to do stuff um, in, in the world of what I like to call speculative fiction, as opposed to just science fiction, um, that, uh, that tapped into those sort of mythological, classical underpinnings, you know. I mean, Dr. David Banner in The Hulk was the classic example of, of hubris, of 
of thinking of, of false pride, of believing that he could ta tamper with things better left to the gods, you know. And oops, no, you get screwed when you do that, pal. <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, and and that's uh, that's what I was endeavoring to do, uh, you know, in the Hulk was really sort of tap into those those mythological uh, underpinnings, and uh, uh, and that and I wouldn't have been able to do that had I just been somebody off the street that read a lot of comic books or something. It, it right. certainly had to do with that with right. that classical background. Well, and I was going to say, um, you know, bef I guess we can start talking about the Hulk now. Um, was the fact that you there's been comic book series on television and they never made the impact at least to me that the hulk did and i know that a good chunk of that is due to bill bixby just being amazing but you brought to that a seriousness and you you um you you created a myth out of that very cartoony type of book well, that um, was it. I mean, when when uh, I was we were doing the Bionic Woman, I had already asked if I could be relieved of my duties on the Bionic Woman because by the second year, Lindsay was into a lot of places that she shouldn't be, and, uh, and was uh, had unfortunately surrounded herself with sycophants, and uh, I was the only one that was sort of being straight with her, you know. And when a star stars don't like to be told no, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and um, I've heard uh, that. Yeah, and I and uh, you know and there was some 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 um, substance abuse going on. It was just not my cup of tea. And I uh, uh, I went to uh, Frank Price, who was then running Universal, and said, "Look, I I want to get off this train before it rolls off the cliff." <laughs> you know? uh, and Frank pleaded with me to stay on just for for a few more months. Uh, they were you know, and, and I said, "Well, I'll stay as long as I can, Frank." But uh, but eventually the day came when uh, Lindsay wouldn't come onto the set until I was gone. And I said, great, I'm out of here. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and shortly before that, Frank had come to me and said, can we have just acquired the rights to the Marvel comic superheroes? Which one would you like to do? And I said, gee, Frank, none of them, you know. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, Captain America and Mary Marvel and uh, the, you know, no, I said, I don't deal well with spandex and primary colors. Um, and... Uh, uh, and I was I was literally at home trying to figure out how I was going to politely say no to Frank and not screw myself entirely at Universal. But I was in the middle of reading a novel that uh, I had never read that my wife, Susie, who is probably the most literate person in my life except for my daughter, Katie, uh, Susie had given me one of her favorite books that I had never read, and it was Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. Mm -hmm. So I was in the middle of reading that, so I had in my head Jean Valjean as a fugitive <laughs> and the intrepid Inspector Javert pursuing him oh. doggedly, you know, and I realized, oh, shit, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I said, there's a way to take a little bit of Victor Hugo and the fugitive concept and a little bit of Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and this ludicrous thing called The Incredible Hulk and, uh, and turn it into uh, an adult psychological drama. And uh, so I went back to Frank and I said, okay, look, I'll do the Hulk for you, but it is the way I want to do it. If you like it, fine. If you don't, then I don't want to do it. And he liked it. And I said, that's great. Now, there's another thing, Frank. I, uh, I'll do it, but I want something in return. Sure, Ken, what would you like? I said, well, I don't think that Sir Walter Scott's Ivanhoe has ever been done well. And uh, I, I saw the movie with Robert Taylor in the 1950s when I was a kid, and I was disappointed because I wanted the panache of Errol Flynn, like in mm -hmm. Michael Curtiz's Adventures of Robin Hood, you know. 
And uh, I said, uh, they, they just missed the boat with that movie, Frank, and it can be a great miniseries with a young sort of Luke Skywalker-type knight that is way in over his head. And uh, Frank says, sounds great. We'll do a four-hour miniseries of Ivanhoe. You do The Incredible Hulk, and bingo. So I wrote the pilot for The Incredible Hulk in about seven days. And, uh, and we shot the white pages of my first draft screenplay. <laughs> And, uh, and, of course, it went on and became very successful, and uh, yada, 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 and asked me if Ivanhoe ever got made. You know, it's, <laughs> it's the way it is. Yeah. But, but, I, but I set out to do it, uh, um, to, to do it, I remember when Bill, Bill, Bill's agent, uh, Paul Braden, gave him the script, and Bill said, I'm not going to read anything called The Hulk. And his <laughs> agent said, Bill, read the script. <laughs> so... About that afternoon, I got this call from Kenny. This is Bix. We had met once before. Oh, yeah, Bix. Good to hear you. Listen, I want to come see you. I want to come see you right away. Oh, sure, sure. Okay. So he came over the next day, and I always characterize when Bill walks into a room, it's like the first eight bars of Tiger Rag. You know, he just comes in like a force of nature, you know? And he came storming into my office and went right up to me. This is what we're going to do, waving the script in my face. We're going to do it like this. Is it really going to be a human drama? Is it going to be tortured souls still signing around? And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is what we're going to do. And uh, he said, will you stay with the show as long as I'm with it? And I took this long pause and, and for some reason found the melody of Faust going through my pit. You know? <laughs> 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 you know? Oh, my God. Am I making a deal with the devil here? Uh, but I said, yes, Bill, I will stay with the show as long as you are with it. And he said, okay, let's do it then. Let's do it. And then we were off and running. And, uh, and yes, he absolutely, he was the first and only actor that I took the script to because I had seen him in a PBS uh, play uh, called Steam Bath. One word, Steam Bath. And it's on DVD. If you've never seen it, get it and look at it on Netflix or wherever, and you'll see why I wanted to hire Bill, because in that play of Steam Bath, he goes through virtually every color imaginable for an actor to go through. And I, I saw it in 1973, and here I was in 1977, four years later, and it was so vivid in my memory that I said, he's the guy that I want. Plus, he was a classy guy. Plus, he had a following of adults that loved him from the courtship of Eddie's father and My Favorite Martian and all of that stuff. And, uh, and he was even in a few movies with Elvis, even, you know? And, um, uh, and so I, I, I wanted a classy guy to, uh, you know, to take on the role, and boy, you know, he nailed it. And we, there was never, again, any, any moments of, of Hollywood nonsense with Vicks. We had a lot of knockdown, drag-out arguments, but it was always about story or character or a line or something, and our agreement was whoever's right gets to win. <laughs> and, uh, and eventually it would just become apparent which one of us would write and the other would cave in and we'd move on. And, uh, uh, yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was a real lightning in a bottle situation because Bix captured exactly what I was looking for and, and just uh, never let go. He's great. Uh, I, I loved him to this day. I, I can't help it. I cry every time I watch the show when something horrible happens to him. Like oh, married... Mary well, Mary. just <laughs> kills me. I know that's yeah, what everybody yeah. goes to, but yeah. oh my god! <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was it was really cool. I, I had always had a, a fantasy in my head that I wanted to put a woman in bed with Bill Bixby and have her wake up with the Hulk and sing, "Ah, oh, sweet mystery of life." At last, I found you. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, 
and and when I when I came up with the idea for that script, that script, uh, it just was it was you know ideal and uh, and it's funny because that was uh, the the uh, opening two parter of our um, uh, our second season, and uh, we got some amazing reviews. Where I remember Variety said something like, "Maybe it's happened while nobody's looking, but the Incredible Hulk has become one of the best dramatic shows on television." It was like, "Oh, thank you, God!" You know. Every once in a while, you, uh, you get it. And the interesting thing, too, of being ladies, uh, the, the, about not only the Hulk, but the Bionic Woman, and V, and Alien Nation, all sci-fi genre stuff, My lar- the largest single segment of my audience was always female. And uh, more women than men. The, the, the number one group was, uh, was females, particularly adult females. And then males, and then teens, and then kids, and uh, and it wasn't because I set out to sort of well, what are girls like to see? You know, I I just wrote the, the stories and the scripts the way that I cared about them, with with strong characters, with strong emotional relationships, with strong women in many right. cases too, and um, uh, and it just for some reason has always really connected with uh, particularly with the female audience which is really, really rare for anybody writing in the, in the sci-fi genre. And, uh, uh, and, but again, I think it has to do with the fact that I'm more interested in emotions and relation, relationships than I am in you know, car chases and blowing things up. And, and to come back to your original question, too, or your thought, um, I think the reason that The Incredible Hulk was, I think it still is, the longest-running show based on a comic book was because I tried to take it as far as I could away from uh, its comic book origins, you know? Well, and I think that's the thing with these Marvel films now, like the one that everybody loves is X-Men First Class, is because mm-hmm. it's not a comic book movie. It really well, it's, isn't. It's, it, it's funny, in the, in the mid-90s, uh, uh, my friend Bill Todman and, uh, and Joel Simon brought me a comic book called The X-Men, and they said, we think you might have fun turning this into a television show. And I read it, and I loved the idea of uh, the underclass of the, the aberrant people, because uh, indeed, uh, you know, it's what alienation is all about, and, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and so was, and, uh, so was the, the, the Hulk, and in some ways the bionic woman was, too, uh, somebody who was not what they appeared to be. Uh, but, I, you know, but I looked at Bill and Joel, and I said, you guys... You know, for me to do this the way that I would see it and that it ought to be done, you can't do it on a television budget. And I said, I said, let's make a movie. And they said, no, no, we really want to do it as a television show. And I said, it'll, it'll never look good enough. It'll never be good enough if you do it as a TV show. That's a big mistake. And so they didn't make it as a TV show. But <laughs> they eventually <laughs> got hooked up with Brian Singer, who made a, uh, a really, really good movie. The first X-Men, I thought, was a, was a blow-away. Uh, and had really captured the kind of approach that I would like to think I would have done myself if I'd, uh, if I'd had the shot at doing the movie. Well, I well, think it's, it's amazing how far special effects have come even in the last 10 years and what we're able to do. How was it to bring back V, having everything out that's out now to be able to, to, to revisit that? Well, he... Well, he it's, it's, um, it's, it's funny. I, I did. I of course didn't have anything to do with the most recent uh, right. failed television version of it, right. nor any of the other ones. What happened was when I when I created the originally in 1982, uh, 
Uh, first of all, there were no aliens in it when I first right, it. right. And as, as you may know, it was uh, it was an earthbound piece about a grassroots fascist takeover. And my friend Brandon Zardikoff, who was running NBC, just went crazy for the idea, but thought that it needed to be an outside force, and like the Chinese or in those days the Soviets, and uh, uh, and. I didn't believe they could sustain it, a, a long-time occupation of the United States. And then somebody, I think it was maybe Jeff Sagansky, who was Brandon's VP at the time, said, How about aliens, Kenny? And I went, Ah! Get away from me! <laughs> <laughs> you know, I said, I don't want to do any more, I don't want to do any more alien stuff. But then I realized that I could, uh, I sat at home last, that night and brooded a lot. And, uh, and, and realized that I could tell the story that I wanted to tell, which was really the theme of which was power. It was about power and people who are in power, people who suck up to that power, people who keep their heads down hoping they won't have their heads taken off. And ultimately, the heroes are the people who fight against it like you know, the resistance did. And I realized that I could sort of eat my cake and have it too by uh, embracing Jeff's suggestion of, of the alien force because the, sh the show was never going to be about big spaceships and a reptilian race and all of that nonsense. It was really about power, and uh, uh, and that's what you know that I that's what I sought to do. And, and fortunately, the 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 critics got it, <laughs> and uh, uh, the reviews were just so sensational when it first came out. <clears throat> and uh, and then the uh, the public response was was even more gigantic because our you know we had it was like the. 80 million people tuned in, and just in North America alone, it was the number one show in the country, uh, the highest rated show NBC had had in two and a half years. It's still the highest rated piece of program, science fiction programming in the history of television. And, uh, and when they released it overseas against the 1984 Olympics, it beat the Olympics two to one around the world in ratings. It was phenomenal. But in spite of all that popularity, in spite of all the critical acclaim, the person who was not happy with it was me, because I hadn't been able to make it the way that I wanted to make it, because for three reasons. First, I didn't have the time. Secondly, they wouldn't give me the budget. And thirdly, and most importantly, the tools that I needed didn't exist then, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, I mean, I was using the same guys that, uh, that Stephen and George were using uh, for, to do Star Wars and Close Encounters. Uh, Greg Jean, who built the mothership for Close Encounters, built the spaceships for, for V. Right. Uh, and, and the same makeup people uh, you know, were working with me that worked with uh, uh, those guys. But we were all working with rubber masks in those days, you know? And now, of course, you can, you can do Voldemort. You can do... Uh, Pirates of the Caribbean with tentacles noses and stuff. It's, uh, right. it's, it's remarkable. And so I was not able in those days to make it the, the way that I wanted to, and that always you know, sort of frustrated me. And, uh, uh, and I left Warner's before the six-hour sequel was made. For, uh, for They just had breached my contract in an, an untenable way, and I couldn't stay. Uh, and then mm -hmm. they tried a series in the mid-'80s, which apparently was even worse. And my friends who did the <laughs> sequels and the series have warned me never, ever to watch it because of, of, of how the networks and the producers and, had taken over and how they had just sort of destroyed what we had Oh, did. they killed off one of the coolest characters within yeah. the beginning. Yeah, well, several of them. And, uh, I mean, there were a lot of things. I mean, one of my favorite stories is, uh, you know, they, for the, for the six-hour sequel, which became known as The Final Battle. I call it The Final Bugger myself, but anyway. <laughs> um, uh, they, they hired a very fine actor named Michael Ironside to play the role of Ham Tyler that we had created. And, uh, and our character of Ham Tyler, his entire character was 
fashioned around the fact that he was confined to a wheelchair. <laughs> now they hire, yeah, they hire Michael Ironside, and he said, "I can't be in a wheelchair with a name like Ironside. I can't do that." <laughs> and, and, the, and, the, and the guys who were who were writing and producing said, "Oh, okay, yeah, that's dumb. Why is he in a wheelchair? Let's take him out of the wheelchair." Well, what they did when they did that was they totally destroyed the character that we had created because it was all built around his confinement. Secondly, they confused the issue, giving us giving you two action hero leads because I didn't want to in, invade Mark Singer's space as our action hero either. And uh, but it's that it was that kind of blithe tossing away of essential stuff that made me crazy, and why I never watched it. Uh, except for 30 seconds when I saw it by mistake when I was surfing, channel surfing one day and I saw them make in that 30 seconds every mistake they could possibly make in 30 seconds and uh, and I said oh my god my friends are right I, I should never watch the show and when I saw the pilot for the new ABC version that was out a couple of years ago you know I had the <laughs> sort of the same reaction as when I saw the pilot of the reimagined bionic woman you know it was like oops <laughs> You know, yeah. oops. Oh, it, they don't, that new they one. Don't, they don't get it, you know. And that's what's sorry, amazing what to me is they have, they have all this new technology and they can do all these amazing things, but if you can't be a storyteller, you know, if you don't, if you don't get the heart of it. And I think that's... Right. Well, that's, that's exactly it. And, uh, and, I, and I have to say that when I heard David Icke uh, was going to be the producer of The New Bionic Woman, I thought, well, you know, that could work. He's a really talented mm-hmm. guy. Uh, but then when I saw the pilot, and it was sort of a cross between uh, uh, Alias and Buffy and, and all kinds of really dark, ugly stuff, and, uh, and plus they hired a, a non-actress <laughs> you know, in the lead role, um, uh, or at least not, not someone as gifted as Lindsay, uh, you know, they, they totally missed it. And, but when, when the show failed after only nine weeks, it was gone in nine weeks, as you probably know. It was the highest tracking new show in the history of Western civilization. And the people at, at uh, I was talking to the president of Warner's, who said, it's going to be a huge hit. I said, Peter, have you seen the pilot? No, 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 but it's going to be a huge hit. It's tracking. I said, I've seen the pilot, Peter. It's not going to work. And um, uh, and it was gone in nine weeks. And David Icke, bless his heart, he took it on a chin. He stood up and said, you know what? We blew it. We never figured out what the show was about. We never put the heart into it that it needed to have. And, and that was, he was right. I mean, as soon as I saw the pilot, I said, whoa, wait a minute. There's no heart. There's no humor. There's no humanity. And then there's no Lindsay, you know, who was uh, a real human being and uh, and, a, and a brilliant uh, actress that made it made her made all of my writing sound like she was making it up as she went along, you know. Well, um, I gotta say, I never wished ill on a show as much as I did the new V. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I because yeah, go ahead. I I, I, watch, I, I only watch I watched <laughs> the pilot, and I I stood up. I looked at my husband and I said, "This is crap. What? What did they do to my show? What did they do? They they've already told everyone they're lizards. Right. I I give this another you know seven episodes. It it surprised right. me and came back a little bit stronger. Well, and yeah, but you gone. know what? You, you you know why it came back though? Uh, it's because uh, ABC put on five new shows that year. They had already and they all tanked. <laughs> <laughs> they had already canceled four of them, you know, and 
and they were in a place where they didn't have stuff to put on, and they were too embarrassed. I heard this from an insider at ABC. They were too embarrassed to cancel all of their freshman shows. So they pulled it, you know, they pulled it off the air, then they put it back on following Lost, and uh, <laughs> and it had worse ratings following Lost than it had, you know, in, when they first put it on the air in November or in uh, yeah November. But the, the the same thing happened with the Bionic Woman MV is exactly what you're describing. The audience tuned in, oh, wow, I can't wait to see, I remember this, or I've, mm -hmm. my parents have told me about it, or whatever, and then it came on, and people said, wait a minute, this isn't what I remember. This, And it couldn't obviously be the, exactly the same show, but what, it, what they missed in both cases was the essence of it, and, and the, the, um, the, the real point and the soul of the show. It just wasn't there. And the audience for both shows, when the first night that they premiered, were about 14, 15 million people, which is pretty good nowadays for a premiering show. Mm -hmm. The second week, both of them fell off by over 30%, and it was the greasy pole to oblivion from there on. It just kept sliding down and down. Bionic Woman was gone in nine weeks, and, uh, and had ABC not had uh, nothing else to put on and was too embarrassed to cancel it all, Z never would have been picked up and limped into the second season. I think they only made about 20 episodes altogether. But yeah. the ratings I always headed down. And it was because, and it was, you know, it was sad to see, but, uh, uh, you know, at the same time, I had, I had nothing to do with it. Warner's owns the TV rights, so they can do whatever they want. The, the, uh, the magical thing happened when, and, and I had thought that uh, because I had written it while I was under contract for V, that, uh, uh, and the publishing rights had gotten tangled up a little bit back in the 80s, I thought that uh, Warner's had their finger in the entire pie of V, so I just sort of set it aside. And then uh, my friend David Foster, who produced a movie that I directed called Short Circuit 2, called me one day and he said, uh, I want to talk to you about V. And I said, oh, you don't want to talk about V, David. Warner's, I said, yeah, man, it's a bad scene. He said, ah, come, come on, have a, have a cup of coffee. So I went over and met him sitting at the coffee bean on Beverly Drive in Beverly, in Beverly Hills. And he said, who owns the motion picture rights to V? And I said, well, Warner's does. And he said, no, they don't. I said, excuse me? <laughs> you know, he said, no, they don't. He said, I just talked to uh, Dan Fury, who's the, the, the head of uh, uh, Warner Feature Business Affairs. And he said, Kenny owns the rights. He has separated rights. He owns the movie rights. Well, goodness gracious, because I had gone back in the, uh, I guess about 2002, and had the notion when I was, it was shortly after I did the DVD release of V, uh, and we were on the dubbing stage, as I had to remaster the whole sound, because when I originally did V, they didn't want me to spend the money to dub it in stereo, because nobody was broadcasting in stereo. That's crazy. <laughs> I, I, I said, you idiots, they're going to be broadcasting in stereo 20 minutes from now, you know? But I had, so for the DVD, I had to go back and remaster the whole soundtrack in stereo surround. It sounded a hell of a lot better than it did originally. But on the dubbing stage, uh, the last scene comes up, and there's face sending her message into deep space, and you know, uh, uh, to try to find the enemy of my enemy, hoping that they'll be my friend, you know. And Dave West, who was my dubbing mixer, uh, turned around and said, "So what happened, Kenny?" And that started my my head spinning, and I thought, "Geez, I don't know what did happen." And I went back and I began to think, "What if we picked up the story 20 years later to see what happened?" And uh, and I went to Warner's TV and told them about it, and they thought it was a great idea. We sold it to NBC in the room, and they were thought it was a great idea. But it wasn't like when I was dealing with Brandon. The new guys at NBC 
would take sometimes six months to read a 13-page story treatment. You know, it was like oh, maddening, geez. tearing your hair out. And finally, after about three years of it, we just ended up pulling it away from NBC and trying to get it set up somewhere else. But by then, nobody was doing TV movies or miniseries. Uh, the, 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 they'd just gone out of style. And um, uh, so it was, I was very frustrated. I even turned it into a novel, which is, uh, which is in publication, called V, The Second Generation. Uh, and um, uh, so, but I had put it out of my head, and now David Foster comes out of the woodwork and says, ah, you own the motion picture rights. Whoa, wait a minute. So I discovered that it was true, that it was, in fact, the case. And suddenly, uh, I will tell you guys, you girls, that I had a lot of new best friends all over town. (laughs) (laughs) Virtually every major studio came at me and said, we want to buy the rights and do this as a big movie. And I I talked to literally every, every major studio in town. I had practically the same meeting. They all saw it as some big... You know, 150, 200 million dollar tentpole summer movie, and and um, Independence I was Day right. Part Two. Yeah. Pardon me. Independence Day Part Two, or something. Well, which is funny too. I mean, the quick Independence Day story is when I was at a, one of the Saturn Award ceremonies. We were getting a, uh, a an award for one of the Alien Nation movies, and these two guys came up to me in the parking lot afterwards and said, "Kenny, Kenny, can we say hello? We've always wanted to meet you. We've been ripping you off for years." <laughs> I said, who are you? And it, it was Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich. And, <laughs> and they literally said those words. We've been ripping you off for years. And I said, yeah, you're right. Where's my cut of the 400 million, guys? And we had a good laugh, and that was that. And, uh, yeah, so Independence Day uh, certainly owed a bit. And so did, of course, uh, District 9 and, this, and a few other movies that you can mention. But, um, uh, but so anyway, suddenly uh, I'm uh, having meetings with all the top brass and all the major studios. They all want to buy the rights. They all want to let me produce and maybe, you know, but sit over here. And, and then we, we want to bring in, like, Michael Bay or somebody who's done a couple of 200 million dollar movies. And, you know, and I just said, no, guys. And they said, well, okay, well, how much do you want then? You know, because when you say no in Hollywood, they think it's because you want more money. Right. And I said, I said, no, 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 you don't get it, guys. I, I've turned down way more money than I will ever be able to make in this town <laughs> because, because i got to really care about what I'm doing. That's really, really important to me. Uh, when I was at Carnegie, I used to, all my books had the Carnegie Mellon, the Carnegie Tech, then book covers on them, and they all had Andrew Carnegie's seal on it, including his motto, which was, my heart is in the work. And I thought, oh, I get it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> your heart isn't in it. Okay. So I said, no, guys, I, I, you don't understand. I, I, it's not, not that I want more money. I, I want control. I don't want somebody to come in and screw it up. I've watched the bionic woman get screwed up. I've watched the get screwed up previously by other people. I've watched the, uh, the Incredible Hulk get screwed up in two really bad movies. <laughs> and... Um, um, and disappointingly, so the second time, I thought with Ed Norton on board and, uh, uh, and, and the, the French director that, uh, who really got it and who said lovely things about our, our, our original Hulk series, that they were going to be able to pull it off. And when I saw the trailer for the second Hulk movie, for the first two-thirds of the trailer, I thought, wow, I think maybe they've got it. They'd even rebuilt sets to, to look like my original sets. It was too funny. And but then about and the emotional lines are there and everybody's you know it's intense and all and then all of a sudden this big green CGI hand comes pushing up through the concrete and your brain goes ah, 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 you know <laughs> it's, it's it's like no just disconnect 
and you know the way I put it, uh, fashion it is by saying if you were watching Shrek, okay, on the screen in 3D animation, right, and suddenly there was a real human being in the middle of the Shrek movie, you'd go, eh, eh. same thing. It doesn't work. You get to disconnect. And I said, no, no, this doesn't work. You can you can take a CGI creature and put him into a world of Harry Potter, my precious, and that sort of thing, you know. <laughs> Or, or, or in uh, or the Lord of the Rings, but but you can't do it in the real world of the streets of San Francisco and and have any adults follow you along. <laughs> and uh, so I, I I just refused to see it get trashed again, and I decided that I would turn down all the big offers from all the major studios to sell them the rights and let them make a big movie out of V and screw it up. Uh, and I so what we've been endeavoring to do is to set it up as an independent picture, still expensive. It was like about fifty-five million. Uh, to do it, but uh, that's a far cry less than what they were talking about, and yet I know that I can make the picture for that and make it really, really good, and uh, and not only that, that it'll be uh, a, a remake that will not reimagine our original V, but rather will take all of the characters and the storylines um, and, and just bring them up into the 21st century, because the bottom line is V is a timeless story. It, you know, it goes back to Spartacus and the revolt of the slaves, or the American Revolution, or the Arab Spring, for God's sake, now. And um, uh, so what we're endeavoring to do is to put together uh, an equity uh, partnership with uh, independent financiers to bring in the, the $55 million that we need and, uh, and make the picture so that when the audience, you know, audiences are so savvy, when they see a, build, uh, a poster that says, from the original writer-director, the original classic is reborn, they know I'm not going to rip them off, you know? They know that when they come to CV, they're not going to get Q, <laughs> you know, or something else. Right. And, well, uh, I, there's, uh, I was going to say, because it sounds like you're going the indie route with this, which is great. <laughs> uh, I'm very happy about that, because everything, like you said, I, I know that Marvel Studios kind of screwed up what Norton was wanting to do with the Hulk. Because he was a big fan of Bixby. He loved the show. Oh, yeah. And he wanted to do the white eyes again. He said, I gotta do the white right, eyes. Yeah. That, was my, right. that was my creation. That wasn't in the comic book, you know. Right, I, I right. Wanted, I wanted that trigger effect. Right. But um, uh, have you thought about doing any of the Kickstarter things like online where people uh, uh, there's another group of gentlemen that I've, I've talked to and had on the show that they're financing the sequel to their original film because they want to keep to what made the original great using fan funding oh um, i know and it's funny i got i got you i got a couple of emails today from fans i get them uh, at least a couple of weeks that come in from people that suggest kickstarter the problem is it's just not practical when you're looking for 55 million right <laughs> you right, know it's right. just way it's out of the park and uh, uh and what i had the tough decision i had to make was I, I, I had to decide if I'd rather the picture never got made than got made wrong. And I decided, yeah, that's what I feel. I'd rather the movie never gets made than gets made the wrong way. And so we are, you know, really pursuing. And it's hard. It's hard to find the $55 million. It's not floating around out there or everybody would be doing it. But, uh, we, you know, we're, we're getting close with, uh, with several prospects. And if, as a matter of fact, if any of the three of you can write me a check for $55 million, you can be the, you can be a producer. And, uh, <laughs> well, I could write you the check. Yeah, well, I, I, now you see, with that, and we've run into that a few times, as a matter of fact. And in, the last, in, in the last year, there have been several people that have, they've even showed us proof of 
funds of where they where we can see their bank account and there's 160 million dollars in just one of their accounts but trying to get them to put that money uh, some for some reason when they go to write the check there's no ink in the pen you know and we've been uh, we've been <laughs> I would, a couple of t- you know a I couple would, of times following that it's it's very frustrating but we're determined and it's it's going to happen eventually I'm sure. I would say go to somebody like Guillermo del Toro and ask him <laughs> I mean, he would be, uh, he's probably a fan. I mean, he loves... Oh, yeah, he's, he's a fan, but he's not going to cough up $55 million. Either, <laughs> you know, I don't know, you never knew. <laughs> or if he does, he's going to say, well, yeah, you know, I'd really like to direct it, man. You know, I, I, couldn't, <laughs> I, I, I couldn't get The Hobbit off the ground, but I'd really like to take a crack at Z. It's like, <laughs> you know, well, well he did do what our... I'm a, I'm a big, big fan of his. I think he's a, I think he's a fabulously talented filmmaker and just, just so, so interested. I think Hellboy is... <laughs> blew me away when I first saw it. Realistic and, people, that's what's so cool about it. Well, that's it, and that's, and that's exactly what, what I want to do. And, and I, I just, you know, when I went back to, to, uh, to bring V up into the 21st century, I just did, I didn't want to try to fix something that wasn't broken. Just to go back to what we originally talked about, about Sherlock Holmes, I didn't want to try to fix something that, that there was very good reasons why it was as successful and as beloved as it was, you know. And just like Sherlock, V is the same way from people. You can't, I get, you get emails from people all over the world all the time for all of my shows, but all of them put together equal about one-tenth of the amount of mail I get just on V alone. Um, it's phenomenal, and uh, uh, if you if you Google V or V visitors or whatever, you get I think eighty three pages of links. <laughs> you know, it's it's astonishing, and uh, so we know that the audience is out there. We know that if we make the picture, they will come to see it, and um, uh, and the script is is really quite good, and also it sets up the following two movies because the there's enough material in my novel of the the second generation to make at least two more uh, sequel pictures to it and uh, uh, that would really be a, a very very cool trilogy so that's that's what we're endeavoring to do and uh, uh, you know and if you run into anybody anywhere that uh, wants to talk to us about it uh, all you have to do is go to my website <laughs> and contact us and uh, uh, we're more than happy to talk, and uh, in the meantime, we're not waiting around. We're uh, we're hustling ourselves with uh, a number of other uh, equity partners. Nice. Well, I think Amanda's already warned me that we're getting near time that we have to, to end the show, which makes me sad because I've still got a lot of stuff to talk to you about, so you have to <laughs> Well, I'll be, I'll be around. I'm not going away, <laughs> and, you know, I, I can see Amanda going... <sighs> Is he finished yet? <laughs> <laughs> well, but I, I definitely have to bring this up before we, we, uh, we, we end the show tonight, which is I have to say cliffhangers. I <laughs> love cliffhangers. And I, I'm, I'm ashamed to say I have a possible bootleg copy of it that's horrible looking. Oh and I want, I want an actual DVD release of Cliffhangers because I Michael Lurie is Dracula. I've to, oh. Yeah, I've, I've mentioned it to Universal uh, you know, a couple of times and, and they just sort of yawn and, uh, uh, and then somebody will think of it later on and it'll be a great idea, you know, but uh, it, was a, it was an amazingly complex and funny show to try to put together. Uh, Freddie Silverman asked me if I could uh, do uh, a one-hour show with three different chapters of three separate movie serials and I had been a huge fan of all of those when I was a kid, particularly the Republic serials. And we ended up shooting a lot of cliffhangers actually in the old studio that where Republic had been, and uh, so oh, nice. it was like an homage, you know. Uh, but it was great fun, and I and I also met such a talented 
bevy of writers, including Jerry Taylor, who went on to do uh, so many of the Star Trek movie uh, television shows, Sam Egan, who went on to do to Quincy and Outer Limits and all kinds of things like that, Andy Schneider, who ended up uh, being my story editor on The Hulk, and then uh, producing and writing Alien Nation with his wife Diane for me, and uh, uh, and Harry and Renee Longstreet, uh, who uh, produced a lot and wrote a lot of stuff for me. All of those folks came from cliffhangers. It was... Uh, it was a bit like a National Lampoon movie while we were all working together. <laughs> well, I, I loved it. I loved the fact that Dracula was the only one that they really ended, though, which was strange. Well, to we me, we did end. We did end uh, the the Secret Empire. Also, we ended it all, but it just never. NBC, the idiots, never broadcast <laughs> the final episode. And uh, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's cra- it was crazy. I even had a screening once <clears throat> for all of the writers years later, who who uh, who, who never got to see it themselves. <laughs> and uh, we pulled it. Out. I got Universal to pull it out of the vault. I think it's in a salt mine in Utah or someplace. <laughs> uh, you know, but uh, just you know, write those. Have people write those letters to uh, Universal Television uh, Entertainment or whatever it's called, and say, hey, where's Cliffhangers? It's because uh, I, I agree I, with well, you. They- it was, it was a fun show. It was, it was so good, and I mean, they released Voyagers on on DVD with John Eric Hex right. and Mamina Blues. So, uh, this right. would be great. But, well, Kenny, thank you so much for coming on. Like yes. I said, we have to have you back because you, you you've got so much great stories. I didn't get to Vincent Price really. We only barely touched the surface <laughs> on that. But yeah, I want to. There's, there's, there's a lot of stuff, and I'll be happy to come back anytime. Just give me a yell and a heads up, and uh, and thanks for your patience. I hope I didn't blather on too long for you. No, we love it. We love stuff. And uh, like I've told everybody, you and Jim Henson were two of the the major building blocks of my youth. So thank you for that. Thank you. Oh, listen, you put me in in very, very high company. I appreciate that. Thank you. You and the Incredible Hulk, you don't understand. Like Rachel Rachel said, he was my imaginary friend, too. (laughs) Well, that's I'm I'm glad. And I love Bill, well, uh, yeah, me too, so much. And uh, but Jessica, thank you, thank you, Rachel, thank you, Amanda. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you, and uh, and you know, you know, keep in touch. Totally, Absolutely. will. And Thanks we will tell everyone we know about V. So okay, please do, and, and find out fifty-five million. You can be executive producers. I, I'll try. I'll go rob a bank right now. There you go. <laughs> now you're talking. My kind of gals. Take right, care. Thank you so much, Kitty. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. And there you have it, everybody. Kenneth Johnson, I want to thank him for being on the show tonight. I think we ran a little long, but the man is is like a walking history book of television. And I just want to say thank you guys for um, hanging out with us and having him on tonight. So so thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed the show. And um, here's to getting V made the way it should have been made. So um, thank you once again and good night. (laughs) 